Barry Simon, and welcome to the YouTube podcast edition of Equal Time for Free Thought. Equal Time for Free Thought was broadcast on WBAI New York from June of 2002 through March of 2020, airing just over 600 programs. You can find our archives, which will include the show you are about to hear and all future programs, at equaltimeforfreethought.org. Equal Time for Free Thought is primarily an interview-based program which expresses some of today's most pressing issues through the lens of scientific naturalism and secular humanism. It is our hope that these programs foster curiosity, critical thinking, and a better understanding of human nature towards a healthier new society we so desperately need to create. Today we will be speaking with two guests, author Alfie Cohn and then Professor of Philosophy Theodore Schick. When progressives and leftists speak about myriad problems in today's society, they often think of education as a primary way to foster healthy and sustainable change. Children, after all, will be the future of our society, of our world. And their education, at least at the hands of our current institutions, has been far from even adequate in many cases. So what can be done? Today we will speak with author Alfie Cohen on some of the issues involved, and more so pick his brain about solutions. Alfie Cohen writes and speaks widely on human behavior, education, and parenting. He lectures at universities and to school faculties, where he often conducts workshops for teachers and administrators on various topics, parent groups, and corporations. The most recent of his 14 books are Schooling Beyond Measure and Other Unorthodox Essays About Education and The Myth of the Spoiled Child, Challenging the Conventional Wisdom About Children and Parenting. Welcome back to Equal Time for Free Thought, Alfie. It's been nice to be here. Nice to have you back. It's been quite some time, and lots have changed since Trump, Biden, COVID nineteen. There are so many questions to ask about how the education system has fared. Fared, <laughs> <in> the, uh, <laughs> no uh, Freudian slip there. Has fared the traumas of the last few years. But what, in general, have you seen? Boy, I wouldn't even know how to summarize this in sort of one aggregate statement. Um, You know, many, many educators, of course, so have been challenged as have students by by the pandemic and the need to suddenly switch to online learning or online teaching, whether it involves learning is an open question. And that's, um, you know, that's been a a nightmare for, for everybody concerned. In terms of overall policy, Interestingly, the pandemic has led to the need to suspend some obnoxious features of education, such as standardized tests and grades. But unfortunately, because that was done only on a temporary basis due to the to COVID, it didn't provide a lasting rationale for getting rid of this stuff for the right reasons and permanently. And so we're already seeing a return to these to these bad practices, including testing. And, and uh, one other thing we can talk about, if you want, is that the pandemic 
has led to this false set of claims about learning loss and the idea that kids fall behind when they're not getting regular direct instruction in a classroom. And that has that's based purely on standardized tests and memorization of basic facts and skills. But it's, it's another indication of how misconceived our understanding of education is um, because of an incorrect assumption that learning is simply lost when you don't constantly uh, keep students in a classroom. Right, which we can talk about later is is certainly not the healthiest um, way to have our children uh, learn in the first place. Um, along with a few other changes that have happened, one thing I noticed through people who have children and young children, um, middle school, even high school, um, is that now that the ones that are still doing virtual and when they were doing virtual, some are going back and forth because of the different variants of COVID and some people, some schools mm-hmm. get scared and, and switch back to virtual, is that parents are now more involved because they can see what the teachers are doing. And there were reports of um, parents communicating with teachers or schools and with other parent parents that a lot of the time spent, especially in middle school, I think, is reprimanding students and trying to get them to pay attention and constantly asking, are you there? Are you there? And actually yelling at some students to which now the parents are saying, you know, they could have hid this when they were in the classroom, but they can't hide this now. Right. So I don't know if you experienced that. Plus the other, plus the other is um, what's happening, at least in New Jersey, I can't speak for the other states, that they have limited, and I think this is happening in the South too, they are eliminating some of the most important parts of school when you get back to school, when you get back to non-virtual education, like most of the second half of the, well, I guess this last year, the end of last year and this year, is they're eliminating some of the things that are most important in some ways besides reading, writing, and arithmetic, like recess and the arts um, in, favor what, a favor, in favor of what exactly I do not know. Um, so that I know of people who have kids in sixth, seventh, eighth grade who no longer have recess, who no longer have piano classes in class in during uh, school time, and everything is extracurricular. What do you um, think is going on in both of these areas? Well, to take the second one first, that was already a, a, a sad trend based on the pressure to raise scores on standardized tests. Right. And so two things happen there. One, anything that's not tested moves down in the priority list and in some cases is eliminated completely. Some of us have been writing about this for a couple of decades, ever since the Many Children Left Behind Act, and even before mm-hmm. in the late 90s, mm-hmm. um, which then got even worse in the Obama administration uh, with race to the bottom. And uh, so the other set of content material and classes that were being tested were then reconfigured and in effect dumbed down and turned into test prep so that yeah some of the tests include social studies and science but now there's pressure to teach them in such a way that it's just about preparing them for the fact-based questions that will appear on the test so everything from the elimination of research of uh, of recess to the diminution of science teaching to a bunch of facts rather than learning to think like a scientist 
um, to other wonderful things that might get in the way of raising test scores, like having a teacher follow a group of kids year by year, having multi-age education and so on. All of this has been sacrificed on the altar of raising test scores because of the whole top-down corporate approach to school reform. Now, when the pandemic happened, there was this rhetoric, as I mentioned a minute ago, about learning loss, which is based on a sort of standards and test-based notion of education in the first place, that kids will forget the stuff they need to do well on standardized tests. You know, Mm. if you learn how to set up an experiment to test a a hypothesis, or you learn what it means to write a a story that really grabs the reader, you don't forget that during the summer. You don't forget that if you're out of school for a year. The stuff you forget, which all of us tend to forget, is the bunch of facts that are shoveled into kids to raise their test scores. So the pandemic then, with with the learning loss uh, narrative, dovetails with the test pressures that were already in place leading to what you're now seeing, which is, in an, at least in some districts and states, which is even more pressure to cut out the um, enhancements, the, uh, the embellishments, the aspects of schooling that are, that are important but not considered test-worthy. Including, and, of course, critical thinking, which is key to learning anything. Right, but critical thinking at least since the 80s or 90s, hasn't been offered as a standalone unit that was excised. Uh, The loss of critical thinking has rather been something that could be woven into teaching more generally in any subject and for any age, but there's less attention to helping kids think critically. Now, the, the first part of your question about parents getting a glimpse of what's happening uh, by, by looking at the screens when the kids are learning from home is, is interesting in its own right. Obviously, part of the frustrating stuff that they saw teachers doing was due simply to its being online, which is a really tough way to try to teach or learn. Mm-hmm. But there are other aspects of the teacher's attitudes and uh, ways of relating to the kids that might have also been present in person, but the parents were seeing it for the first time. And the reaction to that will vary depending not only on what the teachers are doing, but also on the parents' own values. Right. So you've got some parents saying there really isn't a sense of respect for the kids and pulling them into uh, designing lessons. Uh, which is a hard thing to do online, to be sure. But some teachers weren't doing that to begin with because they had a more traditional approach. And some more free-thinking parents don't like that, and for good reason. But other more traditional parents may have had exactly the opposite reaction, which is, you know, why are you asking the kids? You should be telling them. Right. So it cuts both ways when you talk about, and and you know the the right-wing religious set of moves we're seeing now all over the country, particularly in red states, first of all, to get rid of any kind of accurate view of history that reflects uh, our racist past, 
um, right. to get rid of um, anything that that honors different sexual orientations, uh, anti-trans, anti-gay stuff. Uh, they're, they're also now going after social and emotional learning because they think that's indoctrination and somehow tied to so-called critical race theory. All of that stuff, along with anti-mask mandates, anti-vaccine, um, anti-public school, for that matter, through vouchers and school choice. Right. All of that is being offered to us under the rubric of parental rights. The, yeah. yeah, yeah, that sounds very familiar. And you answered about three questions, one there. So really what we need to be doing, and I'm not sure how to do this, and this is kind of one of the questions I, I want to see if you have some ideas on before we wrap up later, is if we have such a segregated parenting, you know, adult commu uh, community across the country, and some people, never mind parents, are are still taught the Hobbesian ways of, of human nature, are still taught that we're um, ultimately competitive and cruel and warlike and all that stuff we've talked about on the show with you and others many, many years, for, for many years now. And the religious school uh, charter stuff we talked about starting with the Bush years, with the, like you said, the old child, the old children left behind. How do we educate, so to speak, to borrow a word, adults, um, specifically, of course, parents, whether it's virtual school or, or in-house school, that what's best for them and their ideology is not necessarily what's best for the children. Because it's about changing ideas before you can change policy. Plus, one other thing that kind of connects to this is I've heard a lot from teachers themselves, some teachers at least, um, that they do not like the form of teaching that they're kind of forced to to engage in if they want to keep their jobs. It's kind of administrative hierarchy as far as what they have to do, especially in uh, maybe in high school, of course, too, but especially in, in below high school, you know, grade school, middle school. Yeah, well, this the second part of what you're indicating has been true for for quite some time, and I've. I've met with teachers all over the country for many, many years now who, when I talk about good ways supported by good evidence of helping kids to become excited about learning, or at least not to lose their enthusiasm and curiosity that they came in with, help them to become critical thinkers and all of that, you know, the most common question is, how am I supposed to do that when I'm being held accountable for teaching a bunch of facts devised by distant authorities uh, to raise test scores. So, you know, I've spent a lot of my career on the road doing presentations with teachers. That's uh, really about what you can get away with, what you're able to, to do without getting fired, since the best teachers have had to be rebels, have had to figure out what they can close their door. Mm -hmm. And, um, and continue to do with kids that make sense and to feel out their administrators to see what they will what they will permit and whether the principals too may share some of their frustration with the corporate version of school reform and to what extent teachers are willing and able to mobilize and organize to push back on this stuff rather than treating a lot, a lot of these mandates as if they're just like the weather you know something you have to become acclimated to and accept and instead 
push back. But I always like to start by saying, let's understand how much we lose when we do this kind of teaching. So, yes, it continues to be a challenge um, to help teachers do what's right by kids when they're under the teachers themselves are under tremendous pressure to to teach in a way that that's that's counterproductive, not just ineffective. As for reaching parents with the basic values, well, I mean, that's that's a very there's no simple answer to that. It, there are a number of parents who I believe if you drill down to rock bottom assumptions and hopes for their kids, that's how I always start out my my workshops is to ask parents or teachers, well, what do you how do you hope the kids will turn out years from now? What are your what are your long term objectives? And I get the same answers most places wherever I go. And then what I do for a living is I say to people, so you say you want this. Why are you doing that? Here's the evidence showing that traditional practices are interfering with, you know, not your own hopes for kids and trying to lay that out in, in various ways. So you, if you say you want kids to be happy and ethical and self uh, sufficient, but also caring and compassionate, uh, lifelong learners. Here's how traditional pedagogy, how we teach, traditional curriculum, what we teach, and a whole range of non-academic uh, interventions having to do with the social, moral, behavioral side of schooling and parenting. Here, Here's how all of that stuff may impede the realization of our own basic goals. So I sort of work backwards from there. Now, there are going to be some people who, whose goals, whose, uh, whose view of, of the world is just so fundamentally different that I don't think I or you or, or any of us can, can reach them. And that, that becomes increasingly a problem. Uh, and mm -hmm. it's becoming more, more transparent now. I mean, I just saw yesterday, a poll showing that half of all Republicans believe the literally lunatic conspiracy theories of QAnon, mm. the stuff that was at the absolute fringes where fascism, you know, uh, intersects with psychosis, has now become the defining feature of one of our two political parties. I mean, people who live in this alternate reality where they think Democrats are drinking the blood of children or you know are all are pedophiles and so on who who literally believe that vaccines kill and that that biden lost the election i don't know how to talk to people like that and i think i think our democracy is in real peril that in a way that it wasn't when you and i spoke last right yeah and the changes i mean you know with the new jim crow and everything we talked about back in the early 2000 in the 2000s or even later we already knew the resegregation of schools and communities and now with the um, the gender identity issues which are so complex i i can't i'm trying to get my head around some of them never mind uh, assuming that educators whether they be administrators or or teachers themselves except for some of the more um, free-minded ones, as you said, or progressive ones, um, never mind parents um, who are conditioned, you know, by the system and the families and the communities they grow up in 
Um, it seems like, and I don't want to sound too apocalyptic, but it seems like um, your worst nightmares of 15 years ago are, are coming true more than we even would have imagined. Um, and I, I, I can tell some stories, which I don't know we, have, we don't have time for, about some examples of how I've seen this with, with teachers. Um, just a quick aside, have New Jersey, we're not talking about Alabama, uh, broken up um, sometimes physically students from holding hands if they're two girls or they're two boys or if they're a mixed race, not even in the school claiming safety issues, but heading to the bus on the sidewalk. So, and it's looked at as this is normal. Anyone who challenges them are given the runaround if at best or just told pretty much, you know, in, in nicer words, you know, what, what you say doesn't matter. So it is, uh, the crisis is is growing. And I guess now is a good a time as any to ask if you, who have been doing this for a long time, realize that there is a, a segment of society like you just described that just aren't going to hear. Maybe we don't need, and probably we've talked about this before, we don't need those extremists necessarily or within a particular party, although it's, it's, it's not like the Democrats are angels either as far as politics are concerned. Maybe we can communicate directly, if possible, in some way to parents themselves or to people. Not all of them are going to be following all the most radical right-wing ideologies. I know it helps the Republican Party because it helps them move students, like you said, away from the public sector into private schools, religious schools, etc. What are the things we can do, ordinary people? Do we do this on a one-by-one -one level? Do we just worry about our own our own kids? Do we build um, ties into communities, knowing that the people at the school system isn't going to listen to most people anyway, especially in communities that that people either don't have the time because they're working two or three jobs, or, or I've believed already the system has failed us and just given up. I know I asked a lot in that yeah, sense. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm having <laughs> trouble parsing this this question because any kind of responsible answer will have to kind of delimit this what can who do about which exactly with respect to which environments? I mean, we'll determine the answer to the question. So I'm not sure what you're asking exactly. What could we um, as individuals who are not the conspiracy theorists in the general public do to, to the question that you always ask people, what do you want from your child's education? Where do you want to see them in many different ways in the future? I guess the question is, what can we do as ordinary citizens. Even if I understand who we are, what we can do to challenge standardized testing is going to lead to a different kind of response than what, what can we do to combat homophobia in the schools, which is a different answer than what can we do to challenge the right wing's attempt even beyond education to reimpose a kind of 1950s-style white, heterosexual, Christian, patriarchal way, way of living on everybody else. What can we do to stand up for the fact that our democracy is coming apart and a, a group that's very much in the minority now has rigged the system so that they get to control what's happening? Uh, I focus a lot on what, what parents and teachers can do with respect to education and parenting, but it is increasingly hard to disentangle that from larger political and social questions. You, you know, a lot of these, 
a lot of these folks are, are pushing to dismantle public schools, uh, not because kids are indoctrinated in public schools, but because kids are given the intellectual tools, hopefully, to resist indoctrination and question what they're told outside of school. And that's exactly what the right wing can't abide. Mm-hmm. Um, so public schools, you know, is, is a cornerstone of, of our society. So it's it's not a coincidence that the people who are manufacturing this outrage over critical race theory and over trans kids in the in the locker room, those activists are being funded by the folks who have long opposed public schooling and are in favor of privatization in education and beyond. So the first thing we can do is make sure that that we support not just certain forms of public schooling, but the institution of public school, of education itself. Uh, The idea of uh, a diverse group of people coming together, funded by our common treasure, to learn together and to be exposed to ideas that kids might not have at home. So we have to help people understand the stakes here and become involved politically as well as educationally in doing that. And with respect to particular educational practices that are becoming troubling, like some of the ones we've been talking about here, um, I think we want to make sure that parents who are really thoughtful about this, who are not necessarily always progressive, but at least rational mm-hmm. and reasonable, that those folks don't abandon public schools because there's this temptation if they can afford it to go to private schools or to homeschool, uh, thereby creating a vicious cycle where the only people left are those who don't have the wherewithal and or the motivation uh, to push back against homework, grades, lectures, worksheets, quizzes, um, uh, a test prep approach to education and so on. We, we need people staying in the schools, organizing, mobilizing uh, to stand up for that sort of stuff and where possible to persuade others who aren't already in agreement with it, not to give up on the idea that we're in separate camps and always will be, but to reach out to folks who are still persuadable, who are still, you know, uh, Uh, doing some reality testing, who are open to arguments, who say, yeah, I want my kid to be successful and thoughtful and a critical thinker. You know, if you're uh, you're coming from a a right-wing MAGA religious environment where you don't want critical thinking, you want your kid to mindlessly obey authority, um, and you don't want your kid even to read stuff that might challenge her, I don't know what to do with people like that. Right. But there's a lot more people who say they do want critical thinking and haven't yet had somebody invite them to connect the dots and see that traditional kinds of instruction of the kind most of us had when we were in school doesn't help to create critical thinkers. And so we might be able to persuade them to join us in supporting the kind of education that does. Yeah, and that's exactly part of the answer for sure, or part of the solution. Uh, these people who don't feel the way these the right-wing people feel haven't had people helping them or haven't had the wherewithal, the time, or et cetera, 
to connect these dots. And it's even moved into the thoughts about higher education. There are people who consider themselves liberals, whatever that means, who say because of the economy often, that let's not um, worry about whether kids go to college or not. Maybe that's for the elite rich kids. Let's just get them a trade so they can get make money, who are falling into the same trap that this is all about you know, creating robots for the, you know, economic, you know, system, the capitalist system, rather than actually teaching um, and educating in the ways of life, which is what education initially, initially, I believe, or at least I would hope, was set up to do. Yeah, and it's not just college versus a trade, too. It's even kids who are going to college, but are pressured to see it as merely a, a credential, Um uh, the idea of a liberal arts education where you're challenged to become a deeper thinker and have a richer uh, life, richer in the, in the non-materialist sense is, right. is something that's reserved for a very small group of the elite and which is largely passed away from many other Western societies, even those that are enlightened enough to make higher education free, not just available for the rich, not saddling kids with lifelong debt. Even those other countries in Western Europe typically are not offering a, a liberal arts uh, hmm. education where learning is valued for its own sake, even within higher education. In other words, there's a powerful move to just see it as a, as a kind of... Uh, amplified version of career training. Right, right. We can talk about so many more things uh, that you brought up in this conversation alone, but as we wrap up, um, yeah. if, if in, in short, and I know there's no such thing as in short with, with this world, but if you had a little bit of advice to offer new teachers or college students who want to become teachers, what might you suggest? Uh, develop an excellent crap detector. <laughs> which yes. I think is what Ernest Hemingway talked about. Yeah, and uh, I think I think Carl Sagan called a bullshit detector too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. No, um, a baloney detector. I'm sorry. Yeah, right. Well, we're all talking about the same kind of thing. It's, exactly. It's not, we're not talking about lunch meat. You know, we understand that. <laughs> we're, we're talking about people who, when they're told, you know, that uh, that you've got to post a series of very specific curriculum goals, benchmarks, and standards on the wall. Um, and deprive kids of any opportunity to participate actively in directing their own learning uh, because it's all about test scores, we have to make sure that new teachers understand that higher test scores are at best irrelevant and more commonly, higher test scores are a bad sign. We, we need young teachers and parents, by the way, to realize that when the test scores go up, if indeed they've gone up beyond what would be predicted based on socioeconomic status, which is the primary indicator uh, correlate of test scores. If the test scores go up, we should be saying, oh, no, what was right. sacrificed from our right. kids learning in order to make that happen? And we have to help new teachers uh, reach, reach out to others and say this cannot pass so that they are outraged by outrageous things, rather than simply accepting their marching orders and carrying out moronic mandates. And they have to reach out to one another. Right. It is very important, too, that each new teacher who's on very shaky footing finds 
like-minded people, even if they're not in the same school, to mm. offer moral support and practical ideas for how to resist what is not in children's best interest. That's a very good way to put it. Thank you again, Alfie, for joining us on Equal Time for Free Thought. Before we let you go, will we be seeing will we be seeing any new book or other project from you in the near future? I don't have a book in the works, but I'm I'm always working on articles. Right. I post one, I hope, thoughtful tweet a day on Twitter. Um, and I and I keep a blog as well on my website, which is alfiecone.org. All right. Thanks again, Alfie, for being on Equal Time for Free Thought. And good luck with this work as you've been you've been doing this for a long time. And as things get worse, we got to work harder. You're right. Thank you for your interest, Barry. You're welcome. Have a good day. Bye. Up in the morning and out to school. The teacher is teaching the golden rule. American history and practical man. You study him hard and hoping to pass. Working your fingers right down to the bone And the guy behind you won't leave you alone Ring, ring goes the bell The cook and the lunch room's ready to sell You're lucky if you can find a seat You're fortunate if you have time to eat Back in the classroom, open your books Gee, but the teacher don't know how mean she looks rolls around You finally lay your burden down Close up your books, get out of your seat Down the halls and into the street Up to the corner and round the bend Right to the juke joint you go in Drop the coin right into the slot You gotta hear something that's really hot With the one you love, you're making romance All day long you've been wanting to dance Feeling the music from head to toe Round and round and round you go You are listening to the Equal Time for Free Thought podcast Equal Time is your evidence-based program informed by scientific naturalism, which addresses issues and events of today's world as a means towards building a peaceful, more cooperative, and healthy society. Find us at EqualTimeForFreeThought.org or on our Facebook page. And now, back to the interview. Dr. Theodore Schick is Professor of Philosophy and Director of the Mullenberg Scholars Program at Mullenberg College. Born in Davenport, Iowa, he received his B.A. from Harvard University, his Ph.D. from Brown University, and he has received the Lindback Award for Distinguished Teaching, as well as the Hoffman Research Fellowship. He has authored the texts How to Think About Weird Things, Critical Thinking for a New Age, with co-author Louis Vaughn, and Readings in the Philosophy of Science, From Positivism to Postmodernism. His work has appeared in a number of anthologies, including one I edited way back in 2004, toward a new political humanism. And welcome back to Equal Time for Free Thought, Ted. Great to be here, Barry. I perhaps want to begin with a question I actually put on Facebook recently. It's a kind of big question, which I think underlies so many areas of human culture, but maybe we can tackle it a little bit. This is what I wrote, and of course, very few people responded. Is it possible that believing without sufficient evidence or disbelieving with abundant evidence 
can be the two biggest obstacles in our way as we work to build a healthier, more secure society. Well, you know, I, I would agree 100% with that. I, I think that uh, one of the most uh, disappointing things about our educational system is that we don't teach intellectual virtue. Intellectual virtue would mean that uh, we should try to get at beliefs that are justified. We should try to uh, hold beliefs that are true. And in fact, I think it's a moral issue if in, if we don't believe in uh, things that uh, are true. So I, I would say that uh, it's immoral to have irrational beliefs. Yeah, it's at the crux of the problem because we can't do anything, whether it's politics or philosophy or science or anything, if people are ignoring evidence, if they even know what that means, and we can get to that in a minute, or they're believing things that have no evidence at all, like zero. So that's what I thought that was like a, a – if we can't do even that, we're kind of in trouble, but which we are. I want to get into the crux of your work in your book that keeps getting – thankfully revised, which I think is wonderful, how to think about weird things soon. Soon, not part of the title. But first, how can we define sufficient evidence? Or how do we define evidence? What what do we mean by when we say evidence? Well, evidence would uh, be justified beliefs. So something can count as evidence if you're justified in believing it to be true. And you're justified in believing something to be true when it provides uh, the best explanation of your experience. The reason why I'm asking is when some people ask me that question or we talk about that, um, they say, what evidence am I talking about? I say scientific evidence. And they say that narrows the conversation. You're narrowing the possibilities of how the world or people operate or how the world uni- uh, universe operates, Barry. They say, if you're just going to look at scientific evidence as evidence, there's other kinds of evidence. So what would you say to that kind of comment? I think science in general is any attempt to get at the truth. So I I would say that a detective who's trying to solve a murder is doing science. He's trying to come up with the best explanation of the data that he has. And the way that he does it is, in principle, no different from the way that a scientist does it. So, So I don't think you can identify science with a particular body of beliefs, uh, a particular metaphysics, or even a a particular epistemology. I think science is just a disciplined attempt to get at the truth. And I think anybody who does it, whether it's an auto mechanic, (laughs) whether it's a a doctor, whether it's a detective, is actually doing, if they're trying to come up with the best explanation available. Yeah, and I remember that's what the late Carl Sagan said, we're always doing that, uh, science, everybody. So we'll get clearer with this because as we get into details and, ex- and examples, um, I'm sure, because um, I don't want to stay too esoteric for uh, our listeners. Um, what do you think, but before I go that, what do you think, and now we're just thinking about this like this morning, what do you think is more dangerous, if I can use that word, believing without evidence or disbelieving with evidence, and why? Well, the believing without evidence is... Uh... I guess what you mean by disbelieving with evidence is that you've got evidence that this is true and, in fact, you don't believe it. Yes, like, for instance, right. what's more dangerous, people not believing in evolution and climate change or people believing in God and New Age um, religions? Right. So understood, understood that way, I would say that they're both equally dangerous. In either case, you're not proportioning your belief to the evidence. You, you're believing 
without adequate justification, and any sort of belief without adequate justification leads to problems. I'd, I'd be happy to explain why I think it's immoral to have. Yes, I was just going to ask you that. Yes. Okay. Well, so it actually has to do with the nature of a moral judgment. So, unfortunately, this is something that uh, is not taught in any classroom unless you get into a philosophy classroom. But if you're going to make a moral judgment about anything, you need a moral principle. So suppose that somebody says slavery is wrong, right? So you would need a moral principle to justify that claim, right? And so you might appeal to the moral principle, well, equal should be treated equally. But from the statement equal should be treated equally, it doesn't follow that slavery is wrong. So what's interesting to note is that particular moral judgments do not follow from moral principles or moral standards alone. In addition to a moral principle or a moral standard, you need a statement of fact, right? So to arrive at the statement that slavery is wrong, for example, you need the moral principle that equals should be treated equally. But then you would also need the factual claim that slaves are equal in the relevant respects. Right. And so only if both principles are true, but only if both the moral principle and the factual claim are true, can the moral judgment that you draw from those two claims be considered justified. And so that's why it's important to have justified beliefs, because every moral judgment that you make rests on a factual claim. And if your factual claims are wrong, your moral judgment, your moral judgments are unjustified. That explains it well. Thanks. That makes sense to me. So connected to this is how we think about these facts and um, how we understand evidence. Like I said before, everybody hears the term critical thinking, but there seems to be many definitions that people have, often not the one that I'm thinking about. What do you mean by the term and why is it important? Well, so critical thinking for me is just the ability to determine or to distinguish justified beliefs from unjustified beliefs. Right. So. Just believing something because it feels good or just believing something because somebody told you to believe it. I mean, those are all bad reasons for believing. What we want to do if we want to think critically is we want to believe those things that we have good reasons for. In other words, we want to believe those things that we're justified in believing. And unfortunately, again, unless you take a critical thinking course in college, uh, most people have no idea what the distinction between a justified and unjustified belief is. Just like nobody, a lot of people don't have an idea about what makes what constitutes legitimate evidence. If we want to, you know, say that as well. Right, it's the same the same sort of thing. And in fact, what legitimate evidence is is, is evidence that you're justified in believing. The fact that it's justified is what makes it uh, legitimate. I was thinking we the the previous program, which will actually be attached to this one, uh, was with a gentleman talking about education and talking. We said a couple of things that you brought up about this educational system we have in this in this society, at least. The critical thinking, as you said, is not taught very much. Maybe at the college level, and it's not even in the departments it belongs. I saw it in English department, psychology department, which is a little bit better. It, it kind of probably belongs in the philosophy department. So what is going on here? Why is there, you know, first of all, what's going on? Why is it not taught? You know, I think I have an answer, but I'm curious to what you're thinking about it. And what can we do as sort of a workaround for people because it isn't being taught? Well, that's a good question. And unfortunately, I'm not a psychologist, so I can't really speak as to the causes of 
why this is indeed the case. But I, I suspect it's uh, the sort of thing that Jerry Falwell said. I mean, so Jerry Falwell said, we don't want to teach people how to think. We want to teach people what to think. Exactly, yeah. And so I think that, you know, a lot of people that are in control of the educational system think it's more important to teach people what to think than to teach people how to think. My view is, is yeah. that the educated person is not the person who can answer the question, but the person who can question the answers. And we just don't teach people to question enough. Right, right. As in uh, the late George Carlin's question everything. Yeah. Um, which right. is what is our motto for the show, as you know. Yeah, so the for workarounds, since it's not being taught, we have to try to find a way in an ordinary lives, so to speak, and outside of the educational institution of education, private or or public, to somehow explain to our fellow peers what critical thinking means, probably in a way to demonstrate it, I guess, um, rather than teach it, maybe by example. That's the only thing I can think of. Because if it's not being taught, our parents aren't going to teach it to us because it wasn't taught to them. And if we're not being taught, we're not going to teach it to our kids. So the people who do know about critical thinking and know what it means and how to do it, you know, have read books like yours. Yeah, I would agree that uh, whenever you can help a person you know, understand what the distinction between justified beliefs and unjustified beliefs are, or good evidence and bad evidence, or good theories and bad theories are, that uh, I, you've done them a favor. And, and the, the interesting thing is, is that, you know, I think everybody wants to hold justified beliefs. Everybody wants to have the best explanation of whatever it is that they're trying to explain. And so I think that People who buy into conspiracy theories, it's not that they don't value critical thinking. They think that they're doing critical thinking. They think that their theories provide the best explanation. And, and the problem is, since no one has ever taught them the difference between good explanations and bad explanations, people end up believing all sorts of bad explanations for no good reason. So the, the, the thought that I had about how do we reach people who for whom facts and evidence mean little to nothing, there you're describing people who think they are have they do have the facts and they are critically thinking. But there are some people, I think, and maybe they're actually doing the same thing now that, that now that I'm thinking deeper about it, who you know, who don't care about what the facts are because it's not something that they reasoned their way into. It's you know, it's some like believing in climate change or evolution or or not believing in God, for instance. It's something they were emotionally um, brought into, and usually since infancy, about things like religion. So I've had tell people say, I don't care what your facts are. I had my set of facts, and you have yours. <laughs> right. That's that's frustrating. But, but yeah, that's a kind of different thing than you were just saying. But I don't know if we can do anything uh, with people who are saying that because they're not open to listening anyway. Right. I mean, so those sorts of people are not interested in, in getting at the truth. I mean, so... They have their beliefs and, and they're going to put up a wall around those beliefs so that nothing can cause them to question those beliefs. And for people who have that sort of mindset, I don't know how you try to reach them. But I would think that, you know, trying to empathize with them and, and trying to ask them, well, how did you arrive at this sort of belief and what sort of, you know, evidence did you consider and, and what is your sources and, and have you considered the consequences of these sorts of things? I mean, I, you can't ask people questions like that to try to get them to think about those their beliefs, but it's not going to work for everybody, that's for sure. 
Yeah, but that's a good. Those are good ideas. It, it epistemologically, you know, so they don't feel personally attacked by critical thinking. Yeah, right. Using critical thinking, they feel like they're brought into the conversation on a on a more personal level. And that that definitely would at least provide some chance of dialogue. Again, tie people tie often critical thinking and and perhaps atheism or scientific naturalism, certainly as a philosophy, etc., to you know to science. So. But people often say not only, like I said before, that science is always changing and sometimes it, it changes enough that it seems like, you know, whatever it was uh, assuming or saying with enough evidence 10 years ago, 20 years ago has been changed. It happens in physics a lot. It happens as we learn things. And I tell people, well, it didn't really change for no reason. It changed because we had more evidence. But there are some questions, you know, I guess philosophical questions, such as the nature of reality the origin of the universe before the Big Bang, whatever that means, because there was no time before the Big Bang, uh, time didn't exist, or the nature of consciousness, which we are working on. Um, we don't know how it's arisen. So people say, well, see, science can't answer those questions or may never answer those questions, so we have to turn to other methods, methods, which often are pseudoscientific. Right, but the thing is, is that there are scientific answers to all of those questions. And in fact, there's a number of different theories that, uh, different scientific theories that have been put forward by people. We don't have enough evidence to know which one of those theories are true, but questions can be answered scientifically. I mean, so, you know, there were, whenever anybody says that science can't do something, it's usually the case that science ends up doing it. So, yeah, I forget, you know, Rutherford or somebody, uh, you know, famous, uh, physicists said, we'll never know uh, the chemical composition of stars, for example. And then I think five years after he said that, you know, we discovered the spectrometer and we discovered the chemical composition of stars. I mean, so, you know, you can't say that, that, well, that science will never discover that sort of thing. To do that is to stop searching, is to stop inquiry. It's a it's a conversation stopper. But take, for example, uh, the, the origin of the universe. There's all sorts of theories about uh, the origin of the universe. So, I, you know, one theory is what might be called the vacuum fluctuation theory that, uh, you know, there was nothing but empty space and then there was a vacuum fluctuation and, and the universe came into existence. And we know that from uh, purely empty space, matter can come into existence because space itself is not uh, just a nothing. But you're right. I mean, so in that view, there might be the notion that there was no time before the Big Bang. But there's a lot of theories about the, the, the Big Bang that allow it to uh, be the product of something that went before. So there's yeah. a, a lot of people who think that the Big Bang may have been a product of a prior Big Crunch. You know, for example, in one theory about the, the universe as a whole was that yeah, so there was this big bang, and so there's enough gravity in the universe. Eventually, the pull of gravity on all the various objects in the universe is going to stop the universe from expanding, and the universe is going to contract back on itself. And if the universe contracts back on itself, uh, you can't squeeze the universe out of existence. It would seem that it would just uh, reverse itself and start expanding again. And so that's called the oscillating universe model. Now, interestingly enough, it seems that the expansion of the universe is speeding up. So maybe the universe as a whole will not contract back on itself. But we know that parts of the universe do contract back on itself. 
uh, for example, in the case of black holes. And so Smolin up at uh, the Perimeter Center in uh, Canada has this theory about uh, the origin of the universe where he says that, uh, you know, so what happens to all the matter, for example, that gets sucked into a black hole? You can't just squeeze that matter out of existence. So it's entirely possible that, you know, at, at a black hole, at some point, uh, the black hole is going to spit that matter out and you're going to have another universe. So so he has this theory called cosmological natural selection. He believes mm-hmm. that black holes are actually cosmic wombs that are giving birth to baby universes. So our universe may well be reproducing. And the interesting thing yeah. about Smolin's view is that, you know, so so you, it also answers the question about the fine-tuning argument. So, you know, fine-tuning is... Why are the physical constants uh, what they are? You know, so if, if the gravitational constant was a little bit bigger, the universe as we know it would exist. If the electron weighed a little bit more, the universe as we know it wouldn't exist. There's all sorts of gosh numbers like that. But it turns out that in order to, to make black holes, in, in other words, in order to reproduce, you actually have to produce a lot of carbon and oxygen. <laughs> so... Yeah. And so, and carbon and oxygen, of course, are what you need for life. So, so Smolin's theory of cosmological natural selection can not only explain where the universe came from, but it can explain why it's so fine-tuned for life. All we have to do is assume that, you know, we're in an ordinary universe, a universe that can produce black holes, and a universe that can produce black holes is going to produce life. I mean, so that's a scientific theory. It's, it's a testable scientific theory. We, we could turn out to be true, but, you know, that's just one of, Many sorts of theories about where the universe came from, but uh, it's yeah, a science, purely scientific theory. So the people who say that science can't answer those sorts of questions, I think, are just mistaken. Yeah, I know um, Lawrence Krauss has a book out, or had a book out, we had him on, about something from nothing, that nothing really is in nothing, and he has a, a theory, too. And this, You're right, there's lots of theories. I don't know, with consciousness, um, with neuroscience now uh, developing as it is, um, it's not just philosophers looking at, at the nature of how this piece of meat in our skull produces consciousness. Right. But every once in a while I get somebody on Facebook or somewhere else tell me um, consciousness is in the universe. The universe is consciousness, our, our conscious. Our brain is just a receptor. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't know what to say to that. But yeah. uh, Right. Well, so, I mean, Interestingly enough, if our brain is just a receptor or it's like a, a transmitting station, and I think people who are dualists in general have to hold that sort of view. So a dualist is somebody who believes that there's two fundamentally different kinds of stuff in the universe. There's physical stuff on the one hand, but then there's mental or psychic stuff on the other hand. Of course, the world's most famous dualist is Rene Descartes, you know, who argued that uh, the mind is a totally non-physical entity. So it has no mass, no spin, no electric charge, not even a position in space, right? And so a lot of people, I think, have a notion that that's what a soul is. A soul is something that's purely non-physical. But what that means then, if you believe that, you have to believe that the brain, we don't think with our brain. We think with this non-physical soul thing. Uh, and the brain then is just a receiving and a sending station. It's just a receiver and a, and a transmitter. Um, so you have to say that somebody who has severe Alzheimer's is just as lucid as you or I. You know, there's nothing wrong with their mind. It's just that their receiving station is broken. I mean, does that make sense? 
Right. <laughs> you really want to believe that with regard to those sorts of things? And there's there's just so much evidence with regard to uh, you know that, that neurophysiologists and psychologists have discovered about the workings of the brain and how much what we do with our minds depend on what goes on in our brain. That uh, you know to assume that we don't think with our brains but we think with some other non-physical entity is essentially to just throw out all the psychology and neurophysiology, which is a pretty high price to pay for accepting a theory. I love the way you put all that. Um, and since we're talking about some of these ideas, uh, before we tackle, I want to discuss one of your articles that you sent me as well. But before we do that, let me ask a couple of questions. Why is the term energy so often misused? What is it in science as opposed to what, what do you make of it when uh, New Ages say, so use it? in many, many ways. Right. Well, I mean, that's a good question, is that we just are not aware of, you know, the scientific theories that our scientists have uh, developed over the years. I mean, so so there's really only, you know, four kinds of forces in the universe, right? So there's electromagnetism and there's gravity, which we're all familiar with. And then there's the weak nuclear force, which, you know, governs radioactive decay, and then there's the strong nuclear force that holds, say, gluons together and a proton. And, of course, those forces only work at the atomic scale. But those that's all the forces there are, and it always amuses me to hear the New Agers when they talk about force or energy. You know, they say, yeah, they, I mean, I saw a New Ager on a, a talk show once, and they asked him what the basic forces were, and he says, uh, friction? Uh, you know, there's, there's also, yeah. I mean, so people just have no idea of, you know, what makes things happen the way that they do in the universe that we live in. And that's a, not just a problem with a uh, lack of critical thinking education. It's a lack of uh, science education. Yeah. So I can see when it's used, if it's used like, you know, I can feel you're highly energetic or I can feel your energy. They really mean I can feel it's some kind of empathic kind of feeling. But when they when it's used in a much more broad term, the way it's used in, in New Age practice and such, alternative medicine as well, it right. then becomes something quite different. So, I mean, the, the New Age view is that there is this sort of life, for, life force out there. Right. right? So it's, uh, you know, chi or whatever and, 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 uh, um, and the chakras, right? And, you know, it's, it's the basis of a lot of these sorts of things. So, so interestingly enough, I come from the city where chiropractic was invented. <laughs> Do you know where chiropractic was invented? Was uh, in, where? No. It was invented in Davenport, Iowa, by a guy named uh, B.J. Palmer. And, and, and in fact, you know, he had studied systems of oriental medicine and so forth. And so chiropractic is actually uh, based on those sorts of views. I mean, the idea is, is that there's a, a flow of energy through the body and that, you know, if... Uh, your spine, for example, is not aligned properly, then the energy is not going to get to the parts of the body that needs it. And so they align the spine to make sure that the energy is flowing properly through the body. I mean, so, you know, this sort of notion that there is this life force that flows through everything is, is, is widespread. But, uh, you have no way of measuring that, that force. I mean, it may well exist, but there is no way to, uh, to measure it. Does that mean that um, there is no science behind anything that 
that chiropractic chiropractic whatever well no so so i have heard i've heard heard some science about how it helps the lower back and so on oh absolutely absolutely so i actually started going to a chiropractor in high school when i ran the hurdles so you know my back would hurt from running the hurdles and and my back would certainly feel better after i went to the chiropractor uh people said it was like taking a girdle off. So when the girdle is on, you don't <laughs> notice it, but then you get adjusted by the chiropractor. And it, I mean, so there's no doubt that, that it works. And the chiropractors, I, you know, I think uh, are paid by most insurance companies because right, it's, right. Obvious, it's obvious that it works. It's just that this particular theory behind chiropractic has nothing to do with the fact that it works. Yeah. And some of the suggestions that chiropractic, some chiropractors say it can do are, are based on that, that kind of premise so another way of, of healing, so to speak, if we talk about healing, um, that is I don't think is paid by by most insurance companies. It has to do with uh, connecting that that phenomenon, that life force ideology or idea with um, with anatomy is acupuncture. Right. Do you have any thoughts on acupuncture before we move on to the next? I have yeah. I, so I haven't uh, studied acupuncture in, in much detail, but. But my understanding is that it, it does seem to work for some people. But the question is, does it work because it redirects the life force? Or does right. it work because it's actually stimulating the nervous system in one way or another? Right, which is probably the case if it's working or it's, right. or, or it's psychosomatic or placebo. But right. of course, ever popular is, and you mentioned this before, is psychic phenomenon which can be a lot of different things from reading minds to, to anything that's, you know, um, synchronicity, all these terms you hear. Right. Um, I guess it's almost, you would give me the same sort of answer. It, it, maybe that has something to do with the life, a life force belief as well, or universal conscious that we're like tapping into somehow. Some people would certainly try to argue for that. If they do believe that, uh, there really are psychic experiences. Uh, uh, the problem is, is that, no one has produced a repeatable experiment that proves the existence of any sort of psychic ability. So, you know, until that happens, it's hard to know whether this stuff is really real or are people just fooling themselves when they do these sorts of things. I mean, so, you know, the, the four basic types of ESP or extrasensory perception are telepathy, where you supposedly can read another person's mind, clairvoyance where you can see a distant object, distant viewing, uh, precognition where you can see the future, and then psychokinesis where you can move something by you know, just the pure force of your mind. And, you know, there are these cases where, gee, people seem to be able to read another's mind at uh, odds against chance of billions to one, right? But when somebody else tries to Performed the same sort of experiment to replicate any results that are different from chance. And so uh, when people go back and look at the original sort of experiments that produce this amazing sort of results against chance, they usually find some sort of sensory leakage that what was happening is that they were using their ordinary senses uh, rather than, you know, some sort of extra sensory perception. And, and, you know, one thing I think to, to note with regard to that, which is, you know, related to what you said about sensing people's energy. I mean, so one of the, the most remarkable examples of this was uh, Clever Hans, the, the horse that could supposedly do math and 
solve all the sorts of problems. Do you know about this clever Hans yes, horse? Yes, yes, I know the story. Yeah, so so here was this horse that you could pose questions to it, and it would tap out the answers with its hoof, and the answers seemed to be right. And and you could tap out the he could tap out the answers even if his owner was not present. And so this made a number of scientists of the day think that you know this horse really may have some some sort of intelligence. But it turned out that when somebody would ask him a question that you know nobody knew the answer to, uh, the horse wouldn't you know get the right answer. Uh, and so what happened is a guy named Oscar Funst figured out that what Clever Hans was doing is he had such acute eyesight, he could actually sense the tension in people as he was tapping out the answers. And once he got to the right answer, you know, the, the, the tension in the people's necks and faces would diminish by just a really small amount, but the horse was sensitive enough that it could sense when the tension had been released, and he would stop tapping at that point. And so people are, wow, he got the answer correct. You know? Right, that's very interesting. And it's like mirror neurons. You know. Right. So, right. So, so what clever Hans had is, I guess, what we might call hypersensory perception instead of extrasensory perception. I mean, just he was just really sensorily aware of very minute details that most of us are not aware of. That's fascinating. Um, we were talking about, and we are talking about critical thinking, and there's lots of logical fallacies, of course, you discuss in your book. So I just had a couple of thoughts uh, along that line. For instance, Eastern philosophies or religions, depends on what people call which one of them, predated those in the West. So first, if a belief system has been around a long time, should we not take it seriously when talking about truth claims? Right. So, well, whether something is old or, or new is irrelevant mm-hmm. in terms of whether it's it's true or false. <laughs> so, so the fact what? that something has been around for a long time doesn't mean that it's been that it's true. And the, and the fact that something hasn't been around for a long time doesn't mean that it's false. So, so the length of time that something has been around itself doesn't indicate whether it's true or false. Is there a name, by the way, to that logical fallacy? I can't remember. Well, appeal to tradition, I guess, would be right. Right. Another one is, does the, this is related sort of, does the number of subscribers to any belief system, even including politics, mean anything to how we evaluate the truth of the system? Right. No, obviously that's, that's not the case either. And this is the problem with, you know, any sort of either cognitive or, or moral relativism itself. I mean, so the vast majority of, People up until the last hundred years or so thought that slavery was okay, but that of course didn't make slavery okay. Yeah, you know, I imagine that uh, at 500 BC, the vast majority of people thought that the Earth was flat, but that doesn't mean that the Earth is flat. Right. We have so many examples like that, but people still yeah. make that fallacy. Before we move away from examples, I'm going to ask one more that's that's still very very popular um, and it's all over YouTube and and the Internet in general, I guess, um, besides traditional religion uh, and certain New Age beliefs, one form of pseudoscience you know, remain, has remained popular is astrology beyond the daily horoscope. So I have kind of a three-part question about astrology. The first part is how ought we understand ideas about stars, planets, and moons and our time or location on Earth when we're born? Is there any – does it make sense to even connect, considering how distant most of the stars are? But we also have the moon and so on and so forth. 
So do the tenets of astrology like that have any, I know you're going to say no because you're a skeptic, but how, I'm wondering how people can think of that in a different way without necessarily criticizing them in a way that, like we talked before about, uh, that makes it feel like a personal attack. Right. Well, so, um, again, the question would become how could the stars affect us, say, when we're born? And the only two forces that act over great distances are the electromagnetic or the gravitational force. Right? The strong and the weak force act over atomic distances. It's only electromagnetism and gravity that could affect us from the stars. But if you're born you know, in a regular hospital, the electromagnetism from the lights in the room are much greater than the electromagnetism from the stars, you know, by a huge amount. And the gravity of the doctor standing next to you is much greater than the gravity of any heavenly body that would be. Of I mean, so, even of the moon, because people talk even, about even tides, the, moon, the tides right? all the time. Right, right. even of the moon. I mean, so, so there just is no known way that uh, these bodies could possibly affect us. And, and the remarkable thing is, is that uh, any number of studies have been conducted to see whether or not any of the sort of claims that the astrologers put forward are true. And unfortunately, they, they always fail. I mean, so, you know, one sort of experiment that was conducted and was actually published in uh, Nature magazine is, uh, you know, they, they talked to astrologers and they said, well, you know, what, what's a way that we could test whether or not what you say is true. And the astrologists say, well, if you give somebody a detailed personality questionnaire, and I forget which psychological personality questionnaire they used, uh, um, you know, one of the standard personality questionnaires, and you give us a detailed chart of the heavens at the time these people were born, we should be able to match the, the star chart to the, the personality. Right. I mean, so if there was something to do astrology, you know, you would think that they would be able to do this better than chance. So so they got the best astrologers they could find. They gave them the most detailed personality uh, analysis they could do. They got the most detailed star charts they could find. And the best astrologers with that sort of information couldn't do any better than chance. And that's just one experiment out of innumerable experiments that have been conducted. And unfortunately, it doesn't work. I mean, even good old St. Augustine, uh, gave up on astrology when he discovered two astrological twins. You know, so so these were kids that were born, you know, at exactly the same moment, I guess, you know, probably in the same room, and turned out to be as different as night and day. I mean, we know what affects personality. We know that it's genes and environment, it's, her, it's nature and nurture, has right. nothing to do with the stars. And St. Augustine knew that. Once he found out these astrological twins that had the same astrological chart were born in the exact same place, were as different as night and day, he realized that there was nothing to astrology. And right. yet, we continue to believe it to this day. Some might find it, you know, just for fun, and some might find it serious, and some might find it very serious, but back to the kind of morality question you asked before, there are astrologers that I'm aware of, have been made aware of, I don't listen to myself, who along with um, along with everything astrological, that they talk about they also talk about politics and lots of other things and they tend to you know some people i would agree for instance with from what i've heard like 90 percent of what an astrologer says when they're not talking about astrology so my question is 
if we're listening, if there's somebody or people listening to this particular astrologer and they're liking 70% of what they're hearing that has nothing to do with astrology per se, because it's versus research, you know, social science or this or that, and it's interesting, what do we do with, you know, is that a moral or immoral thing? Because, you know, their, their whole ideology, no matter what they're saying about things that aren't necessarily tied to astrology is also is really tied to astrology and then they get back to the astrology somewhere along the line I'm, I'm assuming in their each you know talk they give right so well so that's a version of i guess you might call it a, a false appeal to authority it's like uh you know somebody who plays a doctor on a soap opera on tv says well i'm not a doctor but i recommend this <laughs> right, right i mean so the fact that this guy recommends it you know, maybe psychologically appealing because you like the guy. And so it, it may incline you to try the product. And of course, that's why they use those sort of celebrity spokespersons. But of course, it gives you no reason to think that this product is any good. The fact that it was simply endorsed by this guy who plays the doctor on TV. He has no particular expertise. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Yet unfortunately, psychologically, those sorts of appeals can can move us to to do things, and I'm sure that a very popular astrologer could move people to make political decisions too, just because he's popular. Yeah, so we would have to do the same thing as we do anywhere else. The other claims or comments uh, from an astrologer would have to, you know, uh, that's not necessarily directly connected to their astrology belief, would have to be sourced, and we'd have to find out. Okay, you know. Do we independently agree with their political stance on, you know, Russia and Ukraine, for instance, and that kind of stuff? And why? Why not? So it doesn't, you know, just because they're an astrologer doesn't mean we, whether they are or aren't, we still have to do the same work. Right. Exactly. I had, I'm a big Star Trek fan and I had, um, of all the series, but I had a chance to meet Shatner at one point and he tells the story all the time, how people come up to him and think he really is Captain Kirk. <laughs> and he even did a song. He did an album, a more serious album than his stuff he did in the 70s. And I can't remember the title of the song off the album some years ago now, where he keeps he, the whole idea of the song is, I know you think I could do this, that, the other thing, but I'm just a regular person like you. And they, so it was interesting because people do. I, mean, I know some Star Trek fans who are really, you know, very obsessed with the program. I've met them at conventions who really believe in some way that these characters really exist, even though part of them doesn't. So it's, it's very easy for us to become psychologically confused, I guess, depending on our own, you know, determinants and what, what happened to us nature, nurture wise. Right. I think that's true. So as I recall, you didn't Leonard Nimoy at some point write a book called I Am Not Spock? Yes, yes, he did. And then later on, he wrote a book saying I Am Spock. Is that right? <laughs> but I think I think when he did the second book, he was talking about how he created the character and how the character, even though it's just a character, is a part of him and came from a part of him. Rather right. than rather than you know reacting like he probably did in the first book, which I didn't read either book. But I saw a good documentary about him that his son put together called For the Love of Spock, shortly <laughs> uh, after Nimoy died. And two questions that might be overly simplistic, but you can let me know. I asked you a question like this earlier about, you know, believing in something without evidence or disbelieving something with evidence. If you had a list, the most common logical fallacy you, you see made or, you know, hear made all the time, what would that be? Well, I'd say probably hasty generalization. So, so hasty generalization ha- happens when... You make a generalization about a group of things on the basis of just experiencing one or two. It's like those 
used car salesmen, you can't trust any of them. <laughs> you know, right, right. I, you know, I know there's used car salesmen, you just can't trust any of them. So, so maybe you had a bad experience with one used car salesman. But of course, that's no reason to say that all used car salesmen are corrupt. They might be, but the fact that you had a bad experience doesn't justify your making that claim. Right. And one other question like that, then I want to move on to your article. What do you think is the most dangerous logical fallacy and why? The most dangerous one. Yeah, meaning it, it could cause the most problems to our society or culture. And I think maybe the one that we've talked about, the, the fallacious appeal to authority. We listen to people because they, you know, have achieved some sort of notoriety. And we think that uh, because they've achieved this notoriety in this one area, that they're somebody to be taken seriously with regard to some other area. And, of course, that just doesn't follow at all. The good old yeah. Linus Pauling was, was a great chemist, but he didn't know anything about, I mean, you know, so all his claims about vitamin C themselves were not based on good evidence. I mean, vitamin C is good for you, but I think that the sort of thing that he was arguing for was not was something that was outside of his bailiwick, for example. So, on to your article, with no further ado. Um, your article of a couple of years ago on whether or not science can prove God does not exist is important because many people say that science cannot disprove a God exists. You know, though you cannot prove a negative idea. And so we ought to believe, they say, that um, we should, therefore, you know, believe he, it, she, whatever exists in some form. If for no other reason than to play it safe, which is, you know, Pascal's wager, I like throw right. in there as well. So what do you what what do you think of this? And, you know, kind of what is the crux of this article you wrote? Well, so there's there's a couple of ways that you can prove that something doesn't exist. And I think people are really not usually aware of how this works. But I, the first and most obvious way is if you can show that something entails a logical contradiction, then you know that it can't exist. I mean, so we know that there's no married bachelors, right, because the notion of a married bachelor is a logical contradiction. Something can't be married and unmarried at the same time. That's that's just logically impossible. So we don't have to get a grant from the National Science Foundation to see if there might be a married bachelor hanging out in the woods in Appalachia. <laughs> but we just know by the light of pure reason that something like that can't exist. And so if the notion of God is inherently self-contradictory, then, of course, we know that there can't be a God. And, you know, according to certain conceptions of God, all sorts of logical contradictions seem to arise. I mean, you know, one that some people cite is that, gee, God is supposed to be perfectly merciful and perfectly just. Well, if he's perfectly just, he makes sure everybody gets exactly what's coming to him. And if he's perfectly merciful, he lets everybody off. So how can you be perfectly <laughs> merciful and perfectly just at the same time? I haven't heard it put that way before yet. <laughs> or suppose that um, God is supposed to be all-powerful and all-good, right? So if he's all-powerful, there's nothing he can't do. But if he's all-good, there is something he can't do. He can't do evil. So we can do stuff that God can't do, right? We can torture innocent babies. And supposedly God can't do that. But if there's something that God can't do, then he's not all-powerful. I mean, I, you know, there's a million of these sorts of things. So it, it, the notion of God contains a logical contradiction that we know that God can't exist. But I, I think the most interesting way that science goes about to prove that things don't exist is by showing that uh, there's no need to postulate those sorts of things. So, for example, it, it used to be thought that... Uh, 
there was this substance called phlogiston uh, that was responsible for objects uh, heating up, you know, actually ultimately for objects burning. So it was a substance that was transferred from one body to another, and uh, it had various physical properties. Uh, we used to think that there was what's called a luminiferous ether that filled empty space. And the reason that people thought that there was a luminiferous ether is because they thought light was a wave. And if light was a wave, then, of course, if light's going to get from the stars to the Earth, there's got to be some medium that's waving to carry the light from the star to the Earth. And so the view was that there was a luminiferous ether out there. Um, we noticed that, for example, the orbit of Mercury had a particular wobble in it uh, that couldn't be accounted for by uh, Newton's theory of gravity. And so uh, just as it turned out that the, the planet Neptune was uh, postulated when it was discovered that Uranus's orbit had a wobble in it, people thought that, well, there must be a, another planet that's tugging on Mercury to make it wobble in its, in its orbit. And in fact, they had a name for that planet. It's called Vulcan. Uh, yes. So, so Star Trek fans should take note that, that Vulcan was actually postulated by scientists to account for the peculiarities of Mercury's orbit. But scientists have proven that none of those things exist. Phlogiston doesn't exist. Aluminiferous ether doesn't exist. And Vulcan doesn't exist. And they've proven it by showing that we can explain all this stuff without appealing to those sorts of things. So once oxygen was discovered, it was realized we don't have to postulate, you know, this weird, mysterious substance called phlogiston. We can account for burning in terms of ordinary elements that we're aware of. And Mickelson Worley did a ex famous experiment in which they tried to detect the presence of the ether wind, and they didn't detect any presence of ether wind, and Einstein's theory comes along and shows that we can account for how light gets from stars to us without supposing that the universe is filled with this weird medium called the luminiferous ether. And again, from Einstein, we were able to show why Mercury's orbit has its wobble, and the reason that it has a wobble is that the sun actually warps space around it. So we actually are sort of traveling around the rim of a gravity well created by the sun, and it's because of Mercury's proximity to the sun that it has a, the particular wobble that it does. So, so the thing is, all of these things are what are known as theoretical entities. So you couldn't directly observe phlogiston, you couldn't directly observe the luminiferous ether, you couldn't directly observe Vulcan, but they were postulated to try to explain something. But once we were able to explain it, without having to postulate those things, we realize that there's no reason to believe that those sorts of things exist. And the important thing to realize about God is that God is a theoretical entity. It's just like phlogiston. It's just like the luminiferous ether. It's just like the planet Vulcan. You can't directly observe this sort of thing. It's supposed to be as a result of the effects of these things that uh, we postulate. And so it would be the effect of God that would require us to postulate God. But there doesn't seem much left that God has needed to explain. If we can explain this stuff without postulating God, then we've proven that God doesn't exist, or at least there's no reason to suppose that he does exist. Yeah, I mean, the religion thing, let me just hold off for one second, but those other examples I was just thinking when you were talking, a lot of people have heard about ether, for instance. I, I heard that term you know, used a long time ago. But I think sometimes people hear these terms long after they've been disproven 
um, didn't know that they were disproven. Don't know about the studies that you talk about and how Einstein's related to it or, you know, oxygen, et cetera. So, and you hear something long enough all your life, then doesn't, and you don't know the history of where the idea came from. It's easier to believe it might be true because you don't have enough information. You know, the argument right. for ignorance, argument for ignorance, I guess, fallacy. Right. But with, with religion, you know, it gets obviously well, not necessarily religion because that can mean organized religion. But with belief of God, that gets a little more complicated because of the psychological reasons people believe or need to believe or feel they need to believe um, in a higher power or God, you know, fear of death and things like that, which makes it much more complex, um, which makes it very personal, which makes it difficult to explain what you just said about God, the logical, you know, the, the logical contradictions, as well as um, like there's nothing left for God to do for people who, you know, really believe in such a being or whatever you want to call it. A pullout quote uh, you can respond to that with, along with this, if you want. I, am, I don't mean to cut you off. A pull-out quote has you say, of that article has you saying that theists would only would be justified in a supernatural explanation for a phenomenon only if they can prove that it is impossible to provide a natural explanation. How would a theist go about doing this? You might have to explain supernatural too a little bit for people. Yeah, to right. Well, understand because people have different <laughs> ideas about what supernatural means too. Right. Well, so, you know, supernatural would be something over and above what we understand to be uh, real in terms of the justified beliefs that we've established through science or through whatever other sorts of means. But but the thing is that, in general, natural explanations are preferable to supernatural explanations uh, for a number of reasons. I mean, so one of the things that makes an explanation good is the number of entities that it postulates. I mean, everyone knows Occam's razor, don't multiply entities beyond necessity. And that's just a, a basic principle of reason. If you can explain something without assuming that it exists, then there's no reason to assume that it does exist. And to assume that it exists is irrational. Right? So ultimately, if uh, supernatural explanations postulate at least one more entity, namely the supernatural entity, than natural explanations do. So they got simplicity going against them from the beginning. Now, if they can explain something that the natural explanations can't explain, well, then there would be, you know, reason to accept it. And, and uh, well, we could go into a whole little diatribe about neutrinos there, because when neutrinos were first postulated, they were, in effect, a supernatural sort of entity. But we have come to believe that they exist because they do provide the best explanation of a of a number of phenomena. But so for our, for our audience, what's a neutrino? <laughs> so a neutrino is a is a tiny little subatomic particle. And so it was first postulated to account for a loss of energy in fission reactions, right? But what what made neutrinos really weird is that when they were first postulated, uh they were postulated to not have any mass. And so according to Newton, what made something a natural object was that it had mass. So according to the Newtonian conception of what made something a material object, a neutrino was a non-material object. And so there were some people who actually objected to the postulation of neutrinos on the grounds that they were supernatural. Um, but now everybody accepts neutrinos, and, and there are huge experiments that are being conducted um, in various places around the globe to 
try to discover more about the nature of these neutrinos. So if you if you Google neutrinos, you'll find uh, all sorts of interesting things about these sorts of things. But so here is a, an example of what began as a supernatural explanation because it didn't fit the accepted definition of what was natural and now has come to be accepted as part of the natural world, right? So, you know, the God could become accepted as part of the natural world if indeed he could explain something that we couldn't explain otherwise. But there is the the problem of simplicity, but then there's the other sort of problem by postulating God in that so supposedly God causes things to happen in the world. I mean, so God is real. He must have causal effects in the world. And so then the question becomes, well, how does he do this? But according to most standard definitions of God, God is totally non-physical. So how does he affect the world? You know, he can't affect the world by exerting a force on the world because, you know, force as we understand it is mass times acceleration, but God has no mass. So how does he exert the force, you know? Um, so there's, there, you know, it's, it's, this was the whole sort of problem that Descartes ran into when he postulated this immaterial spirit. So uh, there's, you know, if if we're going to use something to explain something else, we want to know how it happened. So, you know, to say that, that God did it is to offer what might be called a personal explanation. I mean, so God is usually assumed to be, uh, a, a person of one sort or another, at least in the Western theological tradition, God is a is a personal God, as opposed to, you know, the Eastern traditions where God is not a, a person, but is, you know, something like pure being, pure consciousness, pure bliss or something like that. But um, and we explain why things happen by saying that an agent, a person caused them to happen. And, and this is what, for example, detectives do. Detectives try to explain, you know, why this murder occurred, right? But for a detective to explain why the murder occurs, there's three things the detective has to do. He has to identify who did it, right? He has to explain how he did it, and he has to explain why he did it. So if you're going to explain something in terms of the actions of a personal agent, you have to identify who, how, and why. And the people who put forward the God explanation never tell us, you know, who this God is. Is it, um, you know, is it the God that's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good? Is it uh, the God of the Gnostics who actually is is a flawed God? How did he do it? What sort of force did he use? You know, why did he do it? And, and if those questions are left unanswered, we don't have an explanation. Yeah, and of course people say you can't question God, so that is a yeah. conversation. So I'll right. Stop it right there. But then, but then we have no explanation. Then to say God did it is to is just to say a mystery did it, which doesn't explain anything. Yes, that's yeah. From now on, when someone says God did it, a mystery did it. I like that. <laughs> I like that analogy or metaphor. Um, and I like when you said in 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 not even about God, but in general. That if something like the neutrinos, if something is postulated that we see as supernatural or paranormal now, whatever the, these, that term means too, I guess it's similar, whatever normal means, but um, which is another whole question, then there's a chance one day that science will show these things to be true. So I hear a lot of people who believe in certain things, 
um, that are supernatural or, or paranormal or, you know, pseudoscientific, which is similar, and say, well, we don't know. Science might have an explanation. Maybe there's no such thing as that doesn't exist or does exist. How do we, we don't know yet. So let's remain agnostic about it. And, you know, one day science may prove that, you know, I was right or the people who believed in this stuff was right. And, you know, we just didn't know the details yet. So that's right. used sometimes as a reason to continue to believe in said supernatural or said paranormal. Belief. Right. But, but that's no reason to believe. I mean, so the fact that you might someday be proven right doesn't mean that you are right or that you justify believing that you're right. You know, so so that's the problem. I mean, so it may well be the case. I mean, it could it could turn out tomorrow that we find that we're all living in a in a simulation, and that all all of the theories that we've derived about the nature of the universe are are false. But uh, that doesn't mean that we're justified in believing that we live in a simulation, or that we're justified in believing all these things are false. I mean, from the fact that something may turn out to be true, there's no reason to think that it is true. All right. Um, we're slowly coming to the end of the of this interview, unfortunately, and there's so many more questions I can ask. We didn't, we didn't even touch, and I don't have it written here to to examine beliefs of, of Eastern the Eastern world as opposed to the Western world, but that might be for another time, maybe. maybe. But I read a book um, and interviewed, well, I didn't personally interview, but one of my hosts interviewed the uh, author. The book was called The Belief Instinct, and it was about how humans are hardwired to believe for certain things like we used to believe in, in spirits in the trees before, or that something to that effect, because any noise, anything could indicate a tiger's around the corner or something, and, or we're in danger. So there's a lot of evolutionary or adaptive beliefs, environmentally adaptive beliefs that we have that the brain is kind of wired for, for survival purposes. The tricky thing gets, comes to when people talk about certain beliefs, and we say, yes, um, there's a scientific, neuroscientific even, um, explanation for why a person believes, could believe in weird things and may believe in weird things. It's a survival technique, but it doesn't mean the thing that one is actually believing exists, actually exists. Right. That's, that's true. That's so a, That's the tricky part the, the, to get across. Right. So, yeah, uh, so psychologists postulate this. Uh, agent detection device, ADD, and they, they claim that, you know, there's good evolutionary reasons for us to be hypersensitive to the presence of agents. I mean, so for example, it may well have been the case when humans were, you know, first evolving that the biggest threat to our existence was other humans. And so it was good to be particularly aware when other humans, say, of a competing tribe were around. So you hear the, the rustling in the bushes, and you assume, the, the people who assume that there might be a, a predator of some sort uh, in those bushes, and, and as a result got up and left, uh, are going to have an evolutionary advantage over those who just sit around. And for those times where there is a predator, predator they just become somebody's prey. So, so the ability to detect the presence of other agents, even when they can't be directly observed, was an evolutionary advantage. And unfortunately, we became very hypersensitive. It's called the hyperactive agency detection device. Our agency detective device became very hyperactive and we started to see all sorts of agents uh, all over the place. And that's where fairies and leprechauns and gnomes and 
you know, all those sorts of unicorns. Yeah, unicorns, all that stuff came into existence. We heard this rustling in the, in the leaves and we never saw an actual human being doing it, but we assume that there must have been some agent present. So we postulate this unseen agent. So yeah, I mean, so I think that a lot of those beliefs are evolutionarily selected for. Um, and another one that also has a, Evolutionary advantage is uh, our our ability to see patterns when you know maybe the patterns don't even exist. So psychologists have a fancy name for this. It's called pareidolia. But so for example, when you look at clouds, you know you can lie on your back and you look at clouds. You say, oh, there's a there's a battleship and oh, there's an airplane or there's a sailboat or something like that, right? I mean, so we're able to put. Uh, an image, we're able to find a structure into this thing that inherently is uh, unstructured. What some people think is this ability to find patterns when there really may not be a pattern is also responsible for our postulating the existence of uh, supernatural entities. Uh, an anthropologist called Guthrie wrote a book that he thought that God in general was a result of our ability to see patterns in things uh, gone wild. I think it's Hmm. called God in the Clouds. Hmm. That's interesting. So the big question here is, and I don't know if this is philosophical or quote-unquote moral or or both, probably both, does truth matter? Right, and and so that brings us back to to where we were at the beginning. And I I think truth absolutely matters because if you're going to make a moral judgment, not only do you have to have a correct moral principle, but you have to have a correct factual claim, which means you have to have a true factual claim. So you can't make a correct moral judgment unless that judgment is based on truth. And so that's why truth is so important. I mean, so if we want to treat each other morally, if we want to act fairly and, and equitably toward each other, we have to base our judgments on the truth. And the other way, and unfortunately, our judgments are unjustified. Yeah, and, and since... We're not getting a lot of this critical thinking and this kind of thinking at all in our school, especially with young people, K to 12, where they're very, well, very, very open and curious to, to learning these things um, before we even get to college, if they go to college. You know, the question becomes two things. You know, how do we reach as many people? Because we, if we don't change minds, so to speak, we're not going to change the world for a more equitable, healthier you know, society. We'll, we'll live, as Carl Sagan, you know, termed it in this demon haunted world for a long time, which is dangerous. So, but how do we reach enough people and how do we reach people where they are, so to speak? We can't like beat them over the head with it. So we got to say, okay, this is what they believe. This is, there are many reasons why they believe what they believe. And I mean, in general, not just any one particular person. How do we reach those people? How do we reach many people where they are? where they're believing currently, to understand even the most simple concept that we just talked about, you know, that truth matters and what that means. Uh, it would be nice if if in teacher education classes they require teachers to have a little uh, knowledge of the nature of moral reasoning or of reasoning in general. I mean, so, you know, there's all this emphasis on mathematics. Imagine if we placed as much emphasis on logic as we did on mathematics and we taught people how to analyze arguments in the same way that we uh, teach them to do math problems. I mean, so uh, it, it could be done. It's just that, you know, I think that there's a resistance among people that to have their 
kids to be thought to question sorts of things. I think we're back to the Jerry Falwell problem. Right. People want to teach kids what to think. They don't want to teach kids how to think. And, you know, until we change that sort of view, it's going to be difficult. Now, you know, there are programs that do this down in Montclair State College. There's a, a program called Philosophy for Children. In which uh, yes, in, in, New, in New Jersey, I think we had the the founder of that on our show a long time ago. I can't remember yeah, his name. Yeah, Walter Lippmann, right? I mean, so yeah. so he was trying to. He actually had developed an entire series of books for K through twelve uh, to teach various aspects of uh, critical thinking. He showed that uh, you know people who took some of these courses for a certain amount of time uh, improved their educational uh, age by a couple of years just by being able to to think critically about these sorts of things. But what was the name of the book series? Philosophy for Children. So it actually is a, a program a school district could uh, use. So a school district would take the Philosophy for Children program, and uh, what would happen is that the, the teachers would take a certain amount of time out of their class every day and read one of these books. So, so he wrote a book for each grade level. So there was a, hmm. you know, there was a first grade book, there was a second grade book. And so what you would do is you would, you know, read this book and this would be the characters in the book would be characters who were as old as the, you know, the class was that uh, was right. in the book. And uh, they would encounter various sorts of situations in their lives. And uh, the teacher would ask them questions about this sort of thing. And, and then the, the, the kids were challenged to come up with their theories about why they thought this was happening. I mean, so so I actually I did my graduate work at Brown University and I became associated with this philosophy for children group. And so I was training to become a teacher trainer. So if a school district adopted this program, uh, there would be a teacher trainer that would go into the school district and teach the teachers how to use this material and so forth. But I actually had to do it in my class myself. And so uh, so I had a, a teacher at, at Moses Brown School in, in Providence, Rhode Island, allowed me to come into his fifth grade social studies class for a month or two months. And, uh, you know, we went through this book. And this, this, this book was really about philosophy of language. It was like, how do words acquire meaning? So the mm-hmm. fifth grade book was, was about philosophy of language. And, and the amazing thing was, so, you know, I was studying philosophy of language in graduate school. And so, you know, I would read the, the, the text in the book and then put the questions to the kids. And from those fifth graders, I got every theory of language that I had ever been taught. They came up with themselves. I mean, there was the platonic theory that the meanings of words are these abstract concepts. There was the Skinnerian theory that the, the meanings of words are, you know, behavior. There was the Chomskyan theory that is hardwired. And these are fifth graders that came up with these sorts of things. I mean, right. it's amazing what kids are able to do if you just give them the opportunity. I wonder how widespread the, this, this, these books, this great tool is in this country. I, I have a feeling it might not be so much in the deep south, but I'm wondering how, even though yeah, here. And no, and unfortunately, I, I you know, have lost contact with those guys. I don't, I don't know what they're doing anymore. But I think that, that Lippmann himself has passed on. So right, I don't, right. I don't know who's carrying the torch now. Because, you know, that would be, um, we had Alfie Cohen on the program, um, and that's who's going to be 
the beginning of the show. And I didn't think of asking that. I should go back and add a question because if he, if he knows about that book series, he has to have learned about that at some point. But that's really one really good way to reach a lot of people at an age where people are still, you know, we haven't been dumbed down so much that we're still interested and not curiosity has been kicked out of us. Because like <laughs> learning math and all the boring and awful ways that teaching is done in our institutions, which Colin and I were, were talking about, there's no making money in thinking critically. In fact, when we think critically, we might change the whole political economic system we have. <laughs> right, God right. forbid, God, quote unquote, uh, <laughs> forbid that happens. No, I think that that's, that's exactly right. And, you know, I have to say that in that fifth grade classroom, so I would ask a question, and every hand in that classroom went up. They all, they all wanted to talk. They all wanted to have their theories. And one person would put forward his theory and the other kids would start, you know, critiquing their theories and all that sort of stuff. And I, I you know, mentioned this to some of the educational professors at the, the place where I teach. And they said, well, that's because you got them at fifth grade. By the time they get to seventh or eighth grade, they become so self-conscious that they're afraid that they're going to, you know, look silly or they're not going to be cool. And so, unfortunately, between fifth and eighth grade, that amazing, wonderful inquisitiveness supposedly is squeezed out of the kids, which is a sad thing. But That may not necessarily be so. It depends on, on the teachers, I guess. It depends on how it's taught. I'm sure there are ways to ask whatever questions are set up um, in this series for, for sixth, seventh, and eighth graders that could address just those very things that make them feel that will make them feel less uncomfortable about right. responding. Right, that's know? true. Well, thank you, Ted Schick, for being on our program after such a long time. It was lots of fun. Yeah, Barry, it's always great talking to you. So uh, I always try to ask this of, of guests. Um, I mean, they can find you on the, on the Internet, but do you have any new uh, book or, or articles or something that's coming or some adventure that's coming up in the future you want anyone to know about? So the, the ninth edition of How to Think About Weird Things. Ninth? Wow. Yes, this, this, this is the ninth edition. This is going to be coming out uh, this year. And I also have a basic introduction to philosophy textbook called Doing Philosophy, an Introduction Through Thought Experiments. So this is also intended to get students thinking about these sorts of things by, by posing thought experiments, which, of course, is the philosopher's favorite way of testing their theories. And that will be the uh, sixth edition. So the sixth edition of Doing Philosophy is coming out this year. And then, uh, no, I'm sorry, it must be the seventh edition of Doing Philosophy and the ninth edition of, uh, of Weird Things. Well, hopefully your publisher gets these into bookstores and libraries and everywhere else it could, um, right. besides well, Amazon. It's, it's McGraw-Hill, so McGraw-Hill. That's a big company, yeah. And it, and it turns out that um, How to Think About Weird Things has been translated into both Chinese and Japanese. Wow, I didn't know that. Which is, uh, which is sort of interesting. And, and so we are reaching, we are, you are reaching Eastern thought, at least with Chinese especially. Yeah, at least, at least with the Chinese guys. And then... I had this really interesting sort of encounter with a professor at the University of Tehran. So he was trying to get a hold of one of my articles and he couldn't find it on the web. And so, you know, he emailed me and said, could I send him a copy of this article? And so I sent him a copy of the article and uh, he said, thank you for the article. Oh, and by the way, we enjoyed reading your book in Farsi. <laughs> and wow. So, and so I called up, I called him McGraw Hill and I said, well, you never told me that you know, you translated this into Farsi, and they said, well, we didn't translate it into Farsi, so there may be like a handwritten version of this book 
Yes, yeah, around on the underground there. On the underground, you know, definitely in Iran it has to be on the underground, but that's, yeah. that's, really, <laughs> yeah. that's really cool. Right. Probably has to, soon going to have to be on the underground here if things keep going the way it's going. <laughs> but anyway, thank you again for being on uh, Equal Time for Free Thought, Ted. Okay, thanks, Barry. Great talking to you. And you have been listening to the YouTube podcast version of Equal Time for Free Thought. If you missed any portion of this show or want to listen to our archives dating back to 2002, please visit EqualTimeForFreeThought.org. There you will also find a link to the Equal Time for Free Thought YouTube page. This is Barry Seidman. First, we had the pleasure of interviewing Alfie Cohen, author of 14 books, including Schooling Beyond Measure and other unorthodox essays about education. Then we spoke with Professor of Philosophy Theodore Schick, who has authored the influential text How to Think About Weird Things, Critical Thinking for a New Age, co-authored with Louis Vaughn. I'd like to thank Penelope, Kirsten, and Alex for lending their voices to identify this podcast, to former co-producer Arnel Doré, and to my co-producer, Melody Ray. For Melody Ray, this is Barry Seidman asking you to tune in, pay it forward, and question Question everything. everything.
your choices I'm afraid of what you're doing and 